0: Welcome to the Coach Haas Podcast, powered by Sports Rehab PA, along with our sponsors.
1: Buy optimizers Mass Zymes, 100% plant-based, naturally-derived, best digestive enzyme blend out there right now. Highly concentrated with... Enzymes that digest proteins, starches, sugars, fibers, and fats. Helps to relieve indigestion, gas, bloating, and fatigue after meals. Take it with the meals to enhance the digestion and nutrient absorption. Also helps to improve recovery after hard exercise and hard efforts. So go to buyoptimizers.com and use code JUICY for 10% off. Kaler Core Training Systems. The Kaler Core Column Training is the next step in the evolution of strength development, preventing training injuries, and elevating core fitness to maximize athletic performance. The Column Core is used to help remap the central motor patterns for functional movements to ensure that the movement quality is efficient before loads and demands. Helps to increase strength, flexibility, and speed by 16%, reduces training injuries by 75%, Works quickly in six short weeks, helps to strengthen the core in the back. Use with multiple Olympic-level athletes, NCAA athletes, as well as pro athletes in the NFL and other sports. Visit KalerCore.com to find out more about the training systems. Also, check out FitLife and Sports Rehab, Ivy Rehab, for
0: understanding the systems as well in this facility. This is a podcast that was inspired by our curiosity in several areas, and some of those include sports performance, sports injury, team training, recovery nutrition, ACL rehab and recovery, personal development, and fitness entrepreneurship. We also have a 15-minute segment called The 15-Minute Juice. It will be a continuation of the podcast just in shorter clips, answering questions on physical therapy, Rehabilitation, return to play after injury, training, and all things fitness. It's fast, it's concise, it's juicy. Okay, welcome to the Coach House Podcast. And uh, today we have on uh, Robert Andrews of the Institute of Sports Performance. Um Robert is the founder and director of the Institute of Sports Performance. He's been in private practice as a mental training consultant and licensed therapist for 28 years. He's worked with Olympians, Olympic hopefuls in the last four summer Olympic games. Uh, He's helped produce numerous Olympic gold, silver, and bronze medalists and world champions. And he's also worked with Olympic athletes from nine different countries and 13 sports, including men's and women's gymnastics, Trampoline, swimming, diving, you name it. Um, Mike, again, another great find. Uh, We were just talking, you know, off the camera there about what great work you do, you know, not only on the pages and and, and spotting people, but even on other podcasts that you listen to. You've been brave enough to get out there, you know, on Instagram or LinkedIn and and get these people to come on. So, uh, Robert, we really appreciate your time. Mm -hmm. This is going to be a really interesting conversation. Uh, this is something that you and I again were talking about before Mike jumped on, that the mental aspect of the coming back from an an injury, in particular the ACL, because that's you know what we see most of which the MPFL is probably, you know, in, in, in a close second right now. Mm-hmm. It seems like we're getting a lot of those as well. But regardless of the injury, it's the mental piece that we keep talking about that that these athletes you know, or not, you know, maybe they're a little hesitant about coming back to do these things. But before we get into all that, I want you to kind of give us a little bit more background and in, in how you got to where you are and, you know, what you actually do.
2: Well, where do I start with that? <laughs> First of all, I'm so grateful for this experience. It almost gives me happy tears because I, I have so much passion about this. And, and I'm, I can already tell I'm talking to like-minded others and, uh, when I meet people like you, I just, I get stoked. So I'm, I'm, I'm really excited. So where did it all start? We kind of have a similar story. When I was in high school, I was covering a kickoff and a guy hit me at my knee, which is now, nowadays it's an illegal block. I tore three ligaments, the medial meniscus, ruptured the fluid capsule, strained the patellar tendon, uh, had surgery, um, uh, I had moved from defensive back to defensive end. And that was my position. I was on fire. I was on a state ranked team. Uh, I was getting more and more playing time, moving into the starting lineup. We were heading into the playoffs and I went down. And so I went from here to here in an instant. And I think that's one of the things that makes ACL so devastating is you're going after a 50, 50 ball or cutting on a route or something. And all of a sudden you're, you're, you're laying on the field, holding your knee, screaming or yelling or whatever that is. So it's it's such a traumatic shift on so many levels. So I had surgery. They put me in a cast for six weeks back in those days and immobilized my leg. And I remember when they cut the cast off, they lifted it off. And I looked at my leg and it was this big around. And I just kind of got lightheaded and just fell back on the table. It was so traumatic. And so I started the, you know, five pounds lifting two and a half pounds, maybe just lifting my quad back then they didn't fire your quad and have all these machines. And it was a, I had a sawhorse with pipes and weights because <laughs> one of my friend's older brothers had torn it. They said, this is back in the seventies, man. This was the dark ages of knee surgery. <laughs> so I'm on a sawhorse in front of my TV. You know, I went from two and a half pounds to five to 10 to 25. And at some point I was lifting 125 pounds with my knee but that's all they did. They didn't measure range of motion or abductors, adductors, hamstrings, none of that. Just get your quad strong. And so I went yeah. out and played. I came back the next year. We won the state championship in football. I was played basketball. I was a four-sport athlete in track and field, but I was terrified of getting hurt again. But I did a really good job of hiding it. Nice. And because of that protective mode, I separated this shoulder. I went up to dunk a basketball and came down and tore the meniscus in my left knee. I kept having all these other injuries because I was in my brain was in hyper protective mode. So I tried playing college football, separated the shoulder again, and then I hung it up. And I did oil and gas for a while. I did investment banking because you know my dad raised me to make money, you know. But I didn't have any passion about that. So I took a one year sabbatical, uh, nine months, almost a year of self-discovery and i came out on the other side of that and i went back to graduate school and got a master's degree in psychology did traditional psychotherapy for 10 years but i did a lot of work with trauma and i did identic imagery and emdr training which are two protocols i use to treat injuries and after about 10 years i was getting kind of bored with it you know I just wasn't real excited about the cases and I was at lunch one day with my wife and I just started crying and she goes, what is it? And I said, I know what I'm supposed to do next. And she says, what? And I said, I'm supposed to take all my experience, research, training, these protocols and trauma, and I'm supposed to help injured athletes overcome the psychological impact of their injuries. And she said, where did that come from? And I said, it's, a, it's a God thing or something. So I talked to a friend of mine that was a high school football coach, athletic director We went through the whole timeline of an athlete being examined by the trainer, the team doctor, uh, pre uh, prehab, surgery, rehab, 100% cleared to play. Yep, that's it. Did they experience any loss? Yeah. Grief? Yeah. Frustration, fear, fear of re-injury, hopelessness, despair. Yeah. Who's helping them with that? And he says, nobody. I said, that's what I want to do. So he sent me my first athlete. And it was a 6'4", 290-pound offensive lineman that had torn his ACL the year before in the first scrimmage of the season. And when he came to see me, he said, I'm going to tell my coach I'm sick because I'm afraid we're scrimmaging the same team, and I'm afraid I want to get hurt again. You know, I don't want that. So I'm going to just tell the coach I'm sick. I said, well, let's get to work. So I used these protocols, and it was my old high school. So I was on the sidelines of that first scrimmage watching this kid, and he three treatments, three sessions. And he was a beast, just an absolute beast. And I figured from that, I was like, this works, man, this protocol works. And his mother came up to me after the scrimmage and says, I don't know what you did to my son, but he doesn't have any fear. And it's a God thing, she said, and I knew I was on to something at that point. And so that, that kind of started me off on this path with injured athletes. And it started with ACLs and then Tommy John and then broken legs and dislocated elbows and broken collarbones and shoulder injuries and you name it. So I just kept pushing it out there. And then that led into requests for performance. And I'd done, uh, I'd done human performance trainings and things like that. So I started working with performance, but right now about 70% of my practice is injuries and I'm fine with that. I love it. It's very rewarding work.
1: Are you able to, uh do you, are you able to share some of the athletes that you have worked with and maybe some of the things that you were working with them to kind of just provide the listeners an example of kind of what that process would look like and, and what it entails? Cause you know, this is definitely something that we deal with, you know, every day, you know um, you know, an athlete comes in and they're injured and, and what does it look like day one, the light at the end of the tunnel, the struggles, you know, it's, You know, it's been six weeks and it feels like forever for them and they have months to go. You know, uh, how do they get through this? And then, you know, you get some of them, they're itching. They want to get back. Um, I don't think they fully understand the complexity of the injury or um, exactly what has happened. I think because we're also, you know, we have a good grasp on as healthcare professionals, but for a parent and a teenager, definitely don't really understand what happened in there because there's a point where they feel fine. The pain is gone. They're moving well. Why can't I run? Why can't I jump? And what is, you know, why, why do I have to hold back and what is it going to take, get me there? You know, so that there's that mental aspect too. They feel like they're in this waiting game, but you know, how do you get through that?
2: Well, what uh, the athletes that I talk about, I have permission to talk about because there's a confidentiality part of this, mm-hmm. but I had the vision in June of 2007 for this injury work, right? Well, the next year in 2008, Dr. Walt Lowe is a renowned orthopedic surgeon here in Houston. Mm -hmm. And he sent me Case Keenum, who's been all over the NFL. And Case Mm -hmm. wrote about me in his book. So I have permission to talk about him. But he had torn his ACL in the UCLA game the year before and was coming back. And Dr. Lowe asked me to work with him. So his first game back was against UCLA again, but here in Houston. And so I went to the game and case was spectacular and coach uh, and and Dr. Lowe comes off the field and he said, he was awesome. He said he didn't even think about his injury. It wasn't in his consciousness. He just, he just played. So, so I got Dr. Lowe's endorsement. So that was in 08. So that was 15 years ago. And we've probably worked together over 500, 600, maybe more ACL cases over, More than that over the last 15 years. And then he spread my name out to other orthopedic surgeons and physical therapists here in town. So I have a great relationship with the medical community here. And I always say great medicine, great physical therapy and great sports psychology. You know, that's the new way back. If you address, not if, when you address all three, you're covering all the bases. And that's when we see these remarkable comebacks like a Case Keenum. I worked with the Houston Texans for six years and I, that was my deal to go over there on Tuesdays and mostly work with their injured athletes. And so I had that experience working with them. And I've worked with uh, Olympic athletes that have come down and uh, their faces hit the high bar and chipped a tooth and had a concussion and uh, ones that had uh, their, their grips locked and it snapped their arm in half almost and just horrific injuries. And so I, um, NBA players with knee injuries and uh, work with three of the universities you know uh, Rice University, University of Houston Houston Christian University here in town and I was on staff with AMS football team back in the Johnny Manziel days and yeah. so you know, I had some great experience working with a lot of great organizations and uh, like like you said in my intro, uh, I worked with Olympic athletes from all those different countries. And the first place, the first question I always asked any serious injuries? because that Mm -hmm. takes up so much space in the brain. So when we, I can't start teaching them performance concepts if the brain's in protection mode and and in that defensive keep you from getting hurt mode. So we, we teach the brain how to process the trauma, the injury, and then we can go to work on performance. So I always ask any serious injuries. That's always Mm -hmm. my first question.
0: It's interesting that you, that you, you know, uh, that you bring that up because, Uh, One of the things I think on the psychological test, Mike, right, is uh, asking if any of the athletes have had any concussions within the last two to three years. Mm -hmm. So in a situation like that, why is that question asked in the psychology part of
2: the return to play? From my experience, a concussion can affect the brain's ability to process incoming information, Like I've had athletes who uh, I had a softball player that got referred to me, college softball player, because she was so angry on the field. So she comes in to see me and we're sitting there talking and she's not tracking my conversation. I kept having to repeat questions and repeat questions. And what did you say? And finally I said, you're here for your anger on the field, but have you had a concussion? And she said, well, yeah, how did you know? Because you're not tracking me. I said, what happened? And she said, uh, it had been raining. We were practicing indoor and, and I went to get back up to get a ball and I hit the soccer goal and the soccer goal fell and landed on the back of my head. Wow. So <laughs> we, we went to, <clears throat> excuse me, we went to work on that concussion and I treated a concussion just like I do an ACL injury because it's a traumatic experience. Now, the protocol is a little bit different, which we'll get into at some point. But two or three sessions later, guess who's not angry on the field anymore? Because her brain was better able to handle incoming information, stimulus, the ball coming at her. And she was angry and frustrated because her brain wouldn't let her process information effectively. And her response to that was, yeah, and then it also has to do with which protocol I use. So I don't use lights with the EMDR because of vestibular functioning. With concussions, we use sound and vibration, which we'll talk about a little bit more.
1: How yeah, but, much does, I'll um, oh, go ahead, Rob, if you want something else. That's all right. That's all right. I was going to say, how much does age and maturation of the brain play into this? Because here, a lot of the, you know, the injuries are happening younger. So now we're dealing with 11-year-olds I know. with UCLs, ACLs. How do you communicate to an 11 year old all the way up to an 18 year old, a teenager? So you have the the spectrum of where there's an immaturity before puberty and hormones, and then there's the immaturity level after that. How much does that affect into you know, I guess that the tactics you'll use in trying to get them to understand the importance of what of what needs to happen for coming back from an injury, and then you know that was getting back into a, into the sport.
2: Well, you're talking developmental concepts here, you know, yeah, yeah. and I, I see 16, 17 year olds sometimes that sit there and go, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And I go, that's a child's answer. And that's my only rule here. You can't say I don't know. Right. So if you did know, what would your answer be? It's a trick question and <laughs> then and then they answered <laughs> <they> answer me <laughs> if you didn't know what would the answer be answer that's me. a
0: that's a great one I, I wish I would have used that in, in my parenting time now they're older and they probably use that on me so
2: but there's you have to change your language with the little ones you know I'm not going to mm-hmm. talk about vestibular functioning and the limbic system and and you know the the hippocampus you know I'll just I'll, I'll, I'll kind of bring it down to a level of well here's what your brain's trying to do. But what's really fascinating with the EMDR protocols is during the pandemic, I learned a lot of different protocols because I was doing all Zoom sessions and I needed to be able to be effective with Zoom sessions because I couldn't do live EMDR sessions. And so uh, me and one of my colleagues who's really good with mental blocks, Michael is amazing with mental blocks with gymnasts and cheerleaders who can't do backward skills and things like that. And he did a training where they had, for the young ones, they had them draw a picture of the worst part of their experience. And with ACLs, about 95% of the time, it's the pop, right? They always remember the pop. They would draw a picture of their knee buckling and the pop. And then instead of doing bilateral tapping or tracking lights or sound and vibration, they would scratch it out with their pen back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Now what they're doing is they're bilaterally stimulating the right left hemispheres of their brain, but they're just using a pen and ink on the pad. And that helps these young ones. It's almost like coloring. So they're not having to sit there and focus tracking a light back and forth or focusing on tones and vibrations. They're able to to do something that's kind of age appropriate to help them process traumatic information Another there's another protocol called EMDR Flash where we have them. We we ask the the, the there's there's uh, seven questions eight seven questions that we ask. What's the image that pops into your mind? What's the negative thought? Uh, how what's the emotion around it? Where do you feel it in your body? How upsetting is it? There's all these questions we ask, and then we have them set that information off to the side, and then we do bilateral tapping, and or tapping on the tops of their thighs back and forth. And then we have them talk about something that brings them a lot of joy and happiness in their life. Like I talked to a guy this morning and his was Christmas time when the family gets all together. And so we're having them tap and talk about Christmas and his family being together and his mother cooking dinner and his cousins coming over. And every time he reaches an emotional peak, we have them blink their eyes. And what we're doing is we're bilaterally stimulating the right and left sides of the brain, and then the the blinking helps the brain, the limbic system, and the brain process information very quickly. So we'll talk about Christmas for five, eight minutes. Have them blink about eight or ten different times, and I'll say, now go back and look over at the image of the pop, and they go you'll see them look for it they'll have to look for it because when the brain processes the information associated with the image it doesn't need the image anymore so it just sends the image away to a different part of the brain uh, so yeah. I, I say all this because because with the young ones we don't want they can't handle going back through those memories of the trauma so we have different protocols scratching. EMDR flash where they can they can process the trauma without getting all re-traumatized or upset by that.
0: Robert, what does EMDR stand for again?
2: Eye movement desensitization and reprogramming. It's a protocol I used almost, I learned almost 29 years ago. You want to hear something crazy? The second training I did for that, they said, okay, the first training they said work on something that's about a five on a scale from zero to 10. The second training, we cranked it up a bit. This was 22 years after I hurt my knee, right? And so I said, I want to work on my knee injury. 22 years later, I did EMDR on my knee injury, and I was absolutely shocked by how much sadness and grief and anxiety I still carried 22 years later. Wow. 22 years later. Isn't that crazy?
0: That is. How does somebody... From another state, how do you work? I mean, obviously, you had to figure that out in, in COVID. So, how does somebody? How do you work with them? Do you find that that it's still um, obviously successful when they're when they're not actually in front of you? And I had to do, you know, for instance, me and you. Like, do th- th- you find that that works?
2: Absolutely. I had a guy in Norway found me on the internet, and he had slipped and fallen and uh, we did remote EMDR, and he was crying, going, oh, my God, I feel so much relief. I feel so much better, and yeah, I worked with athletes in Australia and Canada, colombia you know, all over. Do you find
1: that any athletes, maybe, um, you know, you have an athlete that has, like, a chip on their shoulder, so maybe a previous injury was, like, a you know, what line will you find or figure out with your athletes, whether it's motivating to them and it's it's obviously stimulating their, their progression towards getting back or it's it's actually toxic. And I know that might sound like common sense or certain things. Well, you know, they're doing really well and the motivation is they want to get back. But sometimes there's that initial it's like, you know, striking a match, at fi- it, it, you know, it, it it lights up really fierce at first and then it starts to fade down. Will you see that with athletes and like, how do you determine that is, you know, again, is it, is the injury a motivating thing for them or is it just underlying toxicity? That's going to slowly
2: eat them away. When you say toxicity, what do you mean?
1: Like, you know, that is something that is almost just a negative thing working towards them that maybe some of that, that like uh, the extra work or the, or their or their rationale for doing certain training regimens or, or certain things is because of they want to prove a point or something and it's not It's almost detrimental towards their overall performance or development as an athlete where they're using that as a motivating factor instead of maybe, you know, just kind of being more like trust in the process of a training program like doing extra or, or, or trying to do maybe some um, more risky type behavior or something because they want to prove a point to get back after an injury.
2: I don't see that very often because I usually work with really good physical therapists. They're able to tampen that down before I see them. Okay. Uh, I do see some that are, um, I had a thought around that. Let me see if I can circle back to it. So, um, it wasn't the toxicity part of it and, and I don't see the doing too much. It's more, I would say what I see more is the hopelessness and despair. And especially when we're talking about the second ACL, or they tear the other one, which I'm seeing a lot of. Oh you know? yeah. Oh, and yeah. I don't think it's I don't think it's twice as devastating. I think it's a more like five, six, seven, eight times as devastating because they. I know what and you're going Go Yeah, and that's my
0: point. It's like, why are we rushing? I mean, it's continuous. Ultimately
1: well, we We know why, Joe. We know why we're rushing back. We know that. Right. You know, right. Why? That. Help me out here. Why? Well, uh, I mean, Uh, I'll chime in, but it's yeah, this is this is the thing that there's probably going to be a lot of people don't want to hear, but it's it's the push with the specialization and, and the organized sport. It's the push to be involved starting at five years old because you're going to start at five and you're going to groom yourself for a scholarship or, you know, these clubs and these teams put pressure on them. If you don't attend, you're not going to have a spot. You're not going to get playing time. And these parents are paying a lot of money for these clubs and they don't want their kid to ride the bench. So they got to go to the tournaments, go to the practice, go and travel for a whole weekend away at a tournament. And then these coaches have the audacity to say, come back on Sunday and show up at practice. There's no rest. There's no recovery. There's no talk. We talked about this on all of our episodes, almost every episode, our podcast and we get pretty fired up about it because it's right in front of our face as a major reason as to why this is happening. And we need more help to try to pull it back into a balance because the bucket has been overflowing of just this incessant, just, just sports specific stuff every day, all day, eat, sleep, drink, the sport. And there's nothing
0: else going on. I think that that the last five posts that I looked at every single one of them, was somebody returning before the nine month mark. Oh yeah. yeah. And, and everyone wants, to, everyone wants to say, everyone wants to say, well, you know, I don't want to hear about this research and the parent wants to, they don't want to hear this and, and their kids going to be the next Saquon Bark. Like, stop it already. Like, why are we doing that? And then, and you know, like the segue off of what you were saying, like, cause I wrote it down. I'm like, you know, like what is, what is the psychological, uh, maybe, maybe I'm using the wrong word there, but, getting back with your team versus training to get back with your team. Like how many times do we have to battle with these kids and say, that's great that you want to be at the practice with your team, but you standing there or being the neutral person or chasing the ball doesn't help you. You need to be in the weight room. You need to be training. And so that communication with the coach and him understanding Mm -hmm. and not putting the pressure on her or him to be at the practice and understand that that he or she is at training so that they can get back to practice, right?
2: So my son hey, played high school and college baseball, and he would play all summer, and then there's the fall season, inter squads, and they scrimmage other schools and all that. And then he played the spring season. He was a pitcher, so he developed some arm and shoulder problems in college because he was. He was a middle reliever and they'd always warm him up and then sit him down, warm him up and then sit him down, warm him up. Like he was throwing a third of a game just in warm ups, but he never got into the games. You know, my (laughs) daughter played high school and club volleyball, you know, play in the spring, play in the summer, play in the fall year round. And and what comes up for me is I see a lot of athletes, particularly swimmers and gymnasts that are burned out. Yeah, Totally burned out because the swimmers get up in the morning before the sun comes up and they yep. train and then they go to school and then they train in the afternoons and evenings and then they get home and they do homework and they stay up late they're sleep deprived gymnasts if they go to school they don't i've worked with gymnasts that have hour and a half drives to the gym and hour and a half drives back and they get home at 11, 11:30 and they get up yeah. at 6:30 for school and when we add up they're 40 50 60 hours a month sleep deprived wow burned out Yeah, that's that's something
0: that we've talked about a million times, right, Mike? And we've even had a a neuroscientist come on and and, and talk about that, you know, like how important sleep is these days. Well, and I mean, it's always been important, right. But like we're now we're really trying, we're seeing, you know, how important of a role it plays in the recovery.
1: Yeah. There's, there's no talk about the recovery. There is no education on any of the stuff that goes into human performance. And that's what we're trying to do with these episodes is to get that information out there you can't be an athlete and your body can't perform without these other pieces but the parents and the kids have it grained into their head that at an early age this is what you do you do all you do is focus on the sport day in and day out three hour practices drills 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 there's no other talk about what goes into it and to me as an athlete and you even see it uh, Rob, at a, an Olympic level, you know what goes into training for those type of those competitions, the diet, the nutrition, the mobility, the strength training, the recovery, the time management. You know, some of this, this the sensor tests that we use in here was developed by Trent Nessler. Um, it's going into the latest research is looking at analyzing the movement is one of the pieces that we look at and trying to explain that to a parent and, and, and a child is obviously a lot a lot of work but this is the new territory we're stepping into but you know you the there's a lot more information that comes behind it's not a pass-fail test it's just giving you a better viewpoint as to what's going on I had an athlete who oh, she was doing prehab before an ACL and we used a sensor test to get a baseline. Her numbers were, were pretty good. Then I retested and this was at a time where she was studying for finals. She's a college athlete studying for finals. She wasn't sleeping. She was stressed out you know, and uh, she wasn't eating well, and her numbers drastically dropped, like really bad. And I said, this is an indicator as to what will happen. If What if you had a tournament that weekend, and you went into a game with these numbers? All right, you're at a high risk based on this movement as to what your body is telling you right now. And that's the power of the technology we have with some of these wearables and some more insight as to what is going on with our body. That's telling me that You have to understand that discipline and that maturity as an athlete to know, I have a tournament this week. This is not the week to be staying up late, watching a TV show, catching up with friends, doing whatever. You have to communicate that. And then as a a younger child, a parent would have to communicate that and be like, you know what? Now's not the time where you're staying up late on TikTok or doing stuff with your friends. You have a tournament this week. You're getting your homework done. We're getting this done. We're getting the sleep. But that conversation is not happening. The kids are just like zombies and the parents are just running around doing whatever. And this is the information we're trying to get across to the community.
2: There's a group out of, uh, great Britain that does a lot of research with their Olympic athletes and they talk about resilience Mm -hmm. and they talk about this concept of tank filling, you know, and that means doing mindful activities away from school, away from your sport that bring energy back into the system. And part of the research shows that, uh, sleep deprivation over time can contribute more to injuries yes yeah but people don't get that they don't understand that and, and i talked to a girl yesterday college athlete who's isn't handling the stress of the coaching style well and overwhelmed and they have a perfectionistic style of coaching and so i i ask her how's your sleep oh it's bad i stay up late and da." how are you on your schoolwork? Well, I'm behind. I kind of let it drag. And I said, your mind's not focused on your sport. Your mind's deprived of sleep. You're trying to play this difficult sport and your mind's worried about the project that you have due in two days and the exam that you're not prepared for and the group study project that you haven't done your part for. And she's like, you're right. You're right. So there's the personal responsibility factor in here, which in my practice, we, we, we hammer these these kids and, and athletes about personal responsibility. Buy-in. And, and to circle back to, to difficult, I've I've had athletes come in and in my office and sit down and they're, I don't know, I don't want to be here and they're disrespectful. And I'll go after 10 or 15 minutes of that, I've said, go get your mom and dad and, and then bring them in. And, We're not going to do this. They're not ready. Mm-hmm. And I've I canned them and sent yeah. them out because they're they're disrespectful, they're, they're they're disruptive. And a big part of it is, I don't think they want to go into that cave and see what's in there around that ACL injury or that broken arm. Now, there have been instances where a year later, they come back and they're a different kid. They're ready to work. Mm-hmm. They needed that accountability to say, you're not going to come in here and disrespect me like that. Either right. buy in or we're not going to do this.
1: Right. Now, right. are there things that, you know, cause we, you know, the way a lot of therapy clinics run, unfortunately we don't have as much time to dive into that. We get a little bit, you have your conversation with with your patient, you see how they're kind of handling exercises, conversations, you know, we do our our hands-on with them. Usually have a lot of time to kind of connect with the patient when I'm working one-on-one with them there. Um, But then, you know, we have a lot going on with exercise. We're not really sitting, you know, they'll talk a little bit about it, but I feel like sometimes there's maybe some signs where, you know, you see the way an athlete, you know, will posture or some of the things like, and they're coming in, like I'm thinking about some of these kids that might've, you know, that have retorn and they're in here, you know, are they suppressing it? Are they trying to like, um, be a little bit more confident and be like, I'm here for therapy. I'm, I'm going to push this down and I'm going to show up and I'm going to do my exercises for Mike or for Joe and do what I got to do. And there's underlying stuff there. And, you know, uh, are there things that you do to kind of you know, I guess, break through that a little bit.
2: Um, Absolutely. Yeah. You know. So uh, I sent out an injury questionnaire and it's two and a half pages. And it asks questions like my fear of re-injury is not at all to severe and or zero to 10. So they, they circle a number on there or uh, uh, my sense of disconnection, loneliness, despair, anger, frustration. Uh, I have intrusive images. I have intrusive thoughts. And so they answer all these questions. And that's meant to start stirring up their limbic system. And it also helps me track their progress. And sometimes I'll get not at all, not at all, not at all, all the way down. I'll go, yeah, right. You tore your ACL, Mm -hmm. you got all not at alls. So I just take that in as information, right? So then I say, okay. So I teach them about brain functioning and about holographic imaging and holographic imprints and how the limbic system has a camera system in there that takes pictures of the worst part. And I go, when you think about the worst part of your injury, what images pop into your mind? The pop. I'm laying on the sidelines holding my knee. My teammates are gathering around me. I see their faces. My parents' faces crying. Uh, the doctor telling me I tore my ACL and I need surgery. Sitting on the sidelines watching. They're all typical images. And then I ask them those six or seven questions about each of, the, 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 each of those images and then at the bottom, I said, okay, on a scale from zero to 10, how upsetting is this to you? With ACLs, they're always eight, nines, and tens. Mm-hmm. Zero means not upsetting at all. Ten is as upsetting as you can imagine. But yet they told me on their intake form they were all zeros and not at alls. Mm. So we drill down a little bit deeper. The image is the gateway into the limbic system and the brain. And we then we go in there with the flashlight, and look around, and that's when we get the eight, nines, and tens. And that tells me exactly what I need to do to help them. And, and for you parents, ask your kid, when you think about the worst part of it, they'll come up with two or three images that will probably be one of those I just told you about, the pop, laying on the on the ground, holding my knee, uh, finding out I needed surgery, being at home in my on the couch or my bed in, in pain, uh, sitting on the sidelines watching. They're always the same in, images with ACL injuries.
0: You know what? And I'll say this, and I don't know if I'm I'm doing it the right way. And maybe it may come off as fear mongering to them. But I've explained that very similar to a lot of the parents as they get into that 9, 10, 11 month mark and they're chomping at the bit. And I just say to them simply, there's no need to rush. Just think about your first four weeks, the first four weeks always depending on somebody else. I mean, probably maybe to get to the bathroom, you know, you're certainly not driving. Think about the, you know, the straight leg brace. If you had meniscus surgery, now you're in a straight leg brace for maybe six weeks. Like think about all these, do you, is the risk to reward worth you going back to, and again, like you said, when these injuries happen and they're so traumatic, it's an instant, it's a split second. You're running down the field, everything's fine and the next thing you know you're on the ground
2: you're down yeah and
0: it's like do you it doesn't mean it can't happen again but i think that we've we've proven that the further you get from the injury your are your chances of it happening again are less Mm -hmm. you know and not again it, it does happen at later stage but the chances of it happening are less
2: and I, when I have those kind of impatient ones, you know, I'll say, hey, what's the one character trait you need to develop so you don't suffer through this process? And they, I have a real nice view. They always look out the window and they go, patience? They go, yes, mm-hmm. you have to develop patience. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm not very good at that. <laughs> well, well, then you, well you need this to, is the perfect
0: need, time to start. Yeah.
2: You need to learn how to be. Well, I had knee replacement surgery. November will be 12 years ago. And I had a, I was on a walker for six weeks because of the, the implanted knee that they put in there. I couldn't put any weight on for six weeks because they basically cemented it back into my femur, my tibia and my fibula. But so I had a PT come to the house and I would sit on the couch and hold my leg up for five seconds. And then drop it, and hold it up for five seconds. And then she would leave and I'd pass out on the couch. I was so exhausted. And then we moved to the kitchen where I could lift my leg up, you know, holding onto the island and the sink and she would leave and I would sleep for two hours and I'm just firing my quad and lifting my leg. Yeah. But I remember at that six month mark, I got back on my bike and I went down my driveway and took a left and I started crying because I was back on my bike again, you know, yeah. but it yeah. took firing my quad. That's all I could do initially. And little, I couldn't even get around on the bike. I'd have to do this and push and come back. And, you know, the, the stationary bike at the, at the PT's clinic, I couldn't make a full range of motion on it. I just have to do this. And then, you know, it's just little, little steps that required patience. You know,
0: and and as you're saying that I'm thinking of the reason why I get, when, when they get to the, typically around that 23 to 27 month or week mark i like to introduce a ball and i just like to watch their eyes and they light up and Mm -hmm. it's like because now it's like they can actually see that we're we're on the other side right we're we're further away from pt now we're not we're not restoring movement anymore. Like we're actually like, even if it's just mini, you know, a five yard, you know, passes or, mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, volleys or something like that. It's just, it's amazing when I, when I get that opportunity to bring out the ball to incorporate into some of the drill somehow, how things start to really change. Why does that happen? You think
2: it's like the first thing that popped into my mind is when I go get my, my stick in my ball to play catch with my dog <laughs> <laughs> you know <laughs> it's just the brain lights up.' like yeah. I think I think what you're doing is you're seeing hope because yeah. they've been in this dark place for so long and then you roll a soccer ball or, or hand them a baseball if they've had Tommy John surgery and it brings up some hope, you know and, I, yeah. and, and after an EMDR session, someone will come in in despair and sad and depressed and anxious or afraid of re-injury. And we go through that gauntlet of the EMDR work and they go, I'll say, we get their, we get their upset score down to a zero or one. I go, how do you feel? I go, my body's so relaxed and my chest isn't tight anymore. And then they'll say, I feel hope. I said, hope's a good thing. Yeah, Hope's a good thing. I haven't felt hope in a long time. So I think that's what you're experiencing. When you put the ball out there, you're showing them, we've made it through the biggest part of the gauntlet now. And now there's, there's something really cool on the horizon here. You can play again.
0: Right, right. There's this new goal. There's the carrot being Uh, dangled. Like, here we go.
2: Yeah.
0: You were going to say something, Mike?
1: i was just kind of keeping some note of, you know, some of those type of uh, those things, you know, some of those drills or things, you know, trying to um, add in, you know, you kind of get past, because there's so many things that we're trying to cover here in PT. I mean, these kids really – we hit a lot of components in our clinic. You know, we have, you know, some of the cardio pieces. We use a blood flow restriction. You know, we have neurocognitive stuff with the quick board. And then, you know, they have foundational stuff they gotta do for some of the isolation movements for core and pelvis and you know, quad, hamstring. And then we have we have a functional movement we work on. And then at some point when they're ready, they start getting into a plyometric. So there's a lot of phases in the program and they start sometimes missing to add in the ball and stuff, you know, some of these kids start kind of doing a little bit of that of their own at home. Um, But I think, you know, the, uh, I think the biggest thing that resonated with this whole, you know, this whole like epidemic is that a lot of these, these, this generation, and maybe the ones maybe even below, you know, they all, they all could co-stand on a beach somewhere and they're all going to have a scar on their leg. And they're going to be able to identify. It's, it's like World War II veterans. It's like, uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's unfortunate. It's like you're a survivor of something everyone can identify. And it's kind of sad. It's like, are we going to look back at this in 20 years and be like, what were we doing? You know, sure. like you're going to have all these people with these scars and they all identify together because of that. And it's just I, you know, I've, I'm saying this since even our first podcast episode. Like, I just don't like how much more are we going to push the envelope and how many more kids have to suffer? I mean, I've already thinking about this for my daughter. She's three. What what type of activities do I want to get into her? Because we're going to have to go in and we're going to have to sit and have a conversation with whatever club director it is and all, and or coach. And when they sit here and they say, these are the expectations, I'm going to be like, you're out of your freaking mind. Because you know oh. what I do for a living and I'm not doing that to my daughter. So you could kick it and we'll go find some other club. Mm-hmm. But then the pressure comes on to us and she starts making friends. She's going to want to do what the friends do and I'll be involved. I mean, I have to have that conversation. If all your friends, you know, are going and jumping off a cliff, are you going to follow? Like we have yeah. to make smart decisions or we have to be a leader somewhere where, you know, I have to take the role where if I'm the parent who knows better, I have to educate all the other parents on making a decision. And you know what? This is a toxic club because they're not doing the right things. But this is a club that might be less competitive, but it's healthier for your child. Mm-hmm. They're only six. Okay. Yeah. We have time. All right. We don't need to start specializing until we're 15. Like, wow. I don't do it. They
0: might not let you around there. You're like a whistleblower and a pioneer. You know, it's Robert and I were talking about that beforehand. Like people don't like us, you know, like pioneers and, and people that are trying to, you know, be like forward thinkers. Like you used that word earlier. I love that. You know, like, people get scared of us, you know, like that. They just don't, they don't like that. So be careful. They don't like us. Yeah, (laughs) I know.
1: You have to push the envelope, but they don't like us until all of a sudden they see what it does to their kid. And they're like, I need help. What do I do? And you see all these parents on the ACL group and they're pleading for help. What do I do? What do I do? Where do I go? And there are people out there that will exploit that. There's physical therapists that exploit that there's coaches. I mean, some PT out there charging $500 for STEM because he said Saquon Barkley used it. I mean, come on, give me a break, you know, like, <laughs> and people don't know any better, you know? You know,
2: I had a, a D one softball commit. This was quite a few years ago, but uh, it was in the fall, her fall season. She was a pitcher. And on those club weekends, they're playing like four or five games a day and she's the pitcher, right? And she's talking about how tired she is and da, 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 da. So I said, get out your phone. She gets out her phone. I said, when's homecoming? Let's say it was October 21st, right? I'm just making up a date. She goes, I said, mark out that whole weekend. I said, you have a boyfriend, right? Yeah. You're going to homecoming. Well, I can't do that. My coach won't text him right now. Text him right now and tell him you're not going to be available that weekend. Well, he's going to get mad. I said, so you need a break. You're burned out. Yep. So she texted yep. him, said I'm out that weekend text your boyfriend, tell him you can go to homecoming. She did that. She comes back that week after home. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much. We had so much fun and we hang out with our friends and we had this cool dinner and we got together for yep. pictures and she was just so grateful because nobody just drew the line and said, stop. Yep. exactly. Don't be a kid. Go it's create be some a kid. balance, some balance in your life.
0: That was my son, my younger son's famous line. I just want to be a kid. I mean, he was one of the top goal scorers on his team. So, of course, as soon as the fall season ended and they went indoors, they needed their goal scorer. And he was like, Dad, I don't even want you to bring up the word soccer. I want to go play basketball. And, and, and like these coaches, I said, Listen, he just wants to be a kid. Like, I don't, you know, and, and you know what? I'm so glad that I, that I let him do it his way and, you know, guided him obviously. And if it was started to go the other way, I probably would have steered him and said, Hey, listen, maybe you, maybe you should take a break, but he was smart enough to realize that and just wanted to be a kid. And it's, it's amazing because we're trying to make these kids professional athletes at eight, nine, 10, 18 years old. I mean, they're, they're not yet, you know, some of them are, but listen at 18, and they haven't knocked on your door yet chances are like you might just make a d3 team and that's fine like you're going for education you're going for other things like there's other things outside of the scholarship that that would you know that we should be shooting for Mm -hmm. but before we get too far off topic I did Mm -hmm. want to kind of circle back around and 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 ask about some of the protocols and 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 you know how you do that I, I guess we kind of covered that somewhat but was there anything that you felt like you wanted to add to like what you do as far as your protocols um, to say ACL, you know, athlete coming well, in? Well,
2: what what we're doing is we're doing an assessment to see w- the limbic system. What's going on there? Because that's part of the brain that's about survival. It, there's a part of the brain called the amygdala that scans the environment all day long assessing threats. That's its job. It just assesses threats and it regulates emotion. You tear your ACL, it fires up, and then it starts gathering information, consequences around time, emotion, light, pressure, sound. I always like to say that I had one soccer player, they remembered what the grass smelled like when they were laying face down on the grass. So it's very, very vivid information that Mm -hmm. the brain holds on to. So I always hear their story. I teach them how the brain functions. I actually show them images of the limbic system off a really cool 3D brain app that I use. And I I'll talk about what each of the three parts of the limbic system do and how it stores memory. And then we do an injury evaluation to see what that part of the brain is holding on to. We look at the images and I ask them those questions. And then I use a process called eidetic imagery, where we're actually just going back through the play and rescripting the play with a different outcome. And they have so many days and nights to, to replay that image with a different outcome. And then that starts teaching the brain. The beginning stages of of how to process high stress and traumatic information. Wow! And if they're doing, if they come in and they have five images that are eights, nines, and tens, and they do identical imagery, when they come back for their next session, those eights, nines, and tens are four fives and sixes because the brain's starting to balance itself out. And then uh, I say, "Okay, you had six images." And I never say, "Here's your six images." I say, do you remember what those six images were? And they go, "Um, they have to start looking for it, which is kind of cool because it means it's not right here anymore. Right, right. Like mine was for 22 years. And so they go, oh, it was this one, this one. Uh, I remember four, what were the other ones? And I always love it when I hear that because it means information starting to get filed away to more appropriate parts of the brain. Okay, so we have those images, which one's talking to you? You know which one do you want to work on today? Do an EMDR? And they say, Oh, well, this one. So I transfer the information from one worksheet to another. I sit them down. We put on headphones and sensors or headphones and lights. And off we go. We call it a train ride. We take this train ride mm. together. And on the train, they have the window seat and I have the aisle seat. I can't see out the window. So as they're processing, stuff's coming up. So we run them down the train tracks for a while. And then we stop, what's going on now? I said, well, my stomach's getting tight. And I said, okay, go with that. That means focus on your stomach. Back on the train, we go for a while. I'm starting to feel anxious. Okay, go with that. And we just work our way through this process. And sometimes the train metaphorically goes through the tunnel. That means a lot of emotion comes up. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it doesn't. But the goal is to, like one of the questions I ask them, after I ask them all these difficult questions around their injury in the evaluation part, I say, okay, you ready for the crazy question of the day? And they go, yeah. I said, what'd you have for dinner six weeks ago on a Wednesday night? And they look at me like I'm crazy. And they go, I have no idea. I said, because your brain took dinner and filed away into a certain part of the brain. What if we could take all this information around your injury and send it to that same part of the brain that's holding on to dinner from and they go oh that would be cool and when we're done with the emdr processing with acl it's just like three sessions is all all of those images are down to zeros and ones the images have faded aw- faded away and then we fire up the part of the brain that's about confidence and belief in themselves and they usually on that train ride, they'll go through the tunnel and they come out on the other side. <clears throat> like I had a college pitcher in yesterday who had shoulder surgery and he went through the gauntlet and he comes out on the other side and he starts remembering throwing 96 in high school, being the lead off hitter and being a stud. And, and when he's like, when we finish, he's like, gosh, I want to go throw, man. <laughs> he, was, he was hesitating. So he's like, I feel so fired up. I want to go throw. And so we take wow. that and anchor that, I'm good to go now. We anchor that in and start firing up the part of the brain that's about confidence and belief in themselves. So it's a beautiful process. And from my end, it's the most rewarding work I do to see someone come in here, their head down, they're anxious, they're depressed, they're disconnected, they're afraid, whatever it is. And then when they leave, I've even taken before and after pictures, and their eyes are bright and clear, and their cheeks are red and flushed, and their face is relaxed because when the limbic system relaxes, it increases blood flow and nerve flow in the brain, and everything brightens up. It's the coolest thing to see and experience. So that's kind of the the protocol, the short version of the protocols that I use to to get the results that I get.
0: That's pretty wild.
2: It's cool, man. It's it's just amazing.
0: Robert, now, do you ever
1: what... use the TSK eleven?
2: Yeah. What is that?
1: Okay, that's um. It's a survey that we use as part of our um, injury screening. So usually when we do our first sensor test, we'll give them the a questionnaire and they have a score of 19 they have to hit. If it's above 19, they're at a higher risk of injury. And it's basically just a bunch of questions of them asking how they feel about their you know, their injury. So if it's above 19 and not feeling very confident, or sometimes again, if it's really low and early on, they're feeling really confident. So it just gives you a little bit of feedback of how they're feeling about the I situation.
2: Some of my PTs use that because they'll yeah, send yeah. that over to me. I've never looked at the name of it, but
1: yeah. eleven.
2: If it's the one I'm thinking of, some of the questions seemed a bit repetitive to me on that one. You know, they asked the same question for three or four different angles and maybe they're just trying to really dig in there. And, uh, I don't have mine up and I was gonna pull mine up. Let me see if I have it on my iPad here. I'll just give you a, a couple of hits on mine. Uh if you if we have the time for that. Now, yeah, because, yeah. Do you
0: have do you have these athletes go back? Like do they do you ever see them um revert back?
2: Yeah. Or is this really something cool
0: that like you do in like a couple sessions and it's kind of they they're able to solve it now and and then they're able to identify the triggers and 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 continue to move forward. What does that look yeah, like? Yeah,
2: and and what's really cool about it is uh, the orthopedic surgeons and the PTs that I work with here in Houston, they monitor their progress and and like I had a PT text me and she yesterday she goes so and so needs to get back in to see you. They've hit a bit of a wall. So if they expand their physical therapy, okay, we want to do box jumps. And they, what? Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. that she sees them freeze up. So we work on the image of them jumping and they're afraid they're going to tear their ACL again by box jumping. So we work on that image and then they go back to see her and they do box jumps or they'll the, they'll go back to see a follow up visit with the orthopedic surgeon. And he'll say, I want you to go back and see Robert again. So they'll call me, Dr. Dr. Lowe or whoever it is, says we need to get you back in. Now, I have a really cool story with that. I had a girl that tore her ACL playing soccer and she did great, man. We did. She did great. We processed our way through her injury. She gets cleared. Her first game back, she looks. The first game back is on the same field in Austin, Texas, where she tore her ACL. What are the odds, right? So she's, her parents said she's really freaked out about that. So she comes in. We worked on her fear of hurting her knee again on that field. It only took a half a session. She goes to Austin, scores a goal in the first five minutes of the game, and she was just fine. Jeez. I wish I would
0: have, I I have a, I have a similar story to that. Um, There was a girl coming back from her first ACL, 15 months uh, playing with her brace on going back to a field, not the same one, but a grass field Mm -hmm. that she didn't feel comfortable playing on ironically. Right. And she verbally expressed this to the coach. Well, apparently, as the game went on, the pressure seemed to get a little bit greater. So she goes into the game. She's running by herself, no one around her with her brace on, and she reads her ACL. Why would that happen?
2: Because I think it's because her brain was focused more on protecting her from getting hurt again than it was playing soccer. Because
0: You'll she hear- already had verbalized it. <clears throat> And so it was already in the front of her brain at that point,
2: correct? So her limbic system's doing this, looking mm-hmm. where's the uneven place in the field instead of playing soccer. Mm. I was at a, There's a guy here, uh, he owns a, a physical training place for athletes and he sends us a lot of athletes. And years ago I was over there and he had two scales and he had someone that had torn their ACL, right? And I was explaining to him what I did with injuries. I said, well, let's do a little test here. So we got this kid, to stand on one foot on one scale, one foot on the other, right right by each other. Okay, now close your eyes and tell me when you're balanced. And I said, okay. And then we had them look down. Let's say they weighed 200 pounds, right? Mm -hmm. They had 105 pounds on the leg that they hadn't injured and 95 pounds on the leg that they had injured and they thought they were balanced. So what does that say? Yep, yep. Subconsciously, they're protecting. So if we look at, Torque and force, and all that over time, and there's an extra 10 pounds of weight on that leg. What's that going to do to the potential for re injury?
1: And That's so, this ties analogy. in greatly into what Joe and I reinforce. And this is something I would highlight to all the parents and coaches, and hopefully, listening to this. When the kid is saying at six months, they are, while well, they feel like they're ready to go and they want to go back, this is why. And there's a reason why we progress and we do higher volume into fatigue and then we got to get into you know just like you know some type of perturbation drills something that's going to knock you off balance for lateral movement cutting and pivoting and then doing that when you're really tired there's a reason why we built out the the protocol that we're doing here you know we really challenge these kids what happens when you're tired can you trust your leg and can you be you know, more, you know, as efficient as you think you are. And the same thing on the quick board that starts to show what happens when they get tired, how well they move their feet, symmetry between the legs. And not only just the non-contact drills, we have to get into contact drills and the parents are asking, when are they ready? When are they ready? Mm -hmm. Your son and daughter is still having difficulty controlling themselves, jumping off a three inch box. If you want them to get back better, Make sure they're taking the time out to do stuff at home, maybe cut back time hanging out with the team at home. The more they put the time in, the more they're gonna progress. The answer to the question as to when I'm gonna get back is really how much you put into it. You are basically, you know, you control your own destiny there. The mm-hmm. more you demonstrate the control in these patterns, the more you move on up. Three-inch yep. box, six box. You want to get to an 18-inch box like one of our athletes put the time and work into it. And then you got to be able to do that with the contact stuff. And that's a a, a protocol that actually has been developed by um, uh, Mick Hughes. He's one of the top ACL specialists in the hospital special surgery as well. They will take a foam roller and I tell us all the parents and they will actually whack the athlete with it because Joe has mentioned this a number of times when he has some of those kids in that later stage and they go to cut or pivot or stop, they flinch and they hesitate. Mm-hmm. If another kid sees that on the field, especially the way some of these females play, or they see that at a showcase, there's those parents out there, they're going to pull the daughter aside and say, she's wincing, take her out because that's a spot for money in a scholarship. And that's just yep. a sick landscape we're navigating.
2: So I know.
1: I know. And it's the same thing in the NFL. It's the same thing in pro soccer. It's all over. So those are some of the things that are the components that are in there. And again, it's not using that those fear tactics but it's just the reality of the situation and this goes into why we take them through the steps Mm -hmm. and it goes right into what you said rob about like they are naturally guarding show me that you could do that and you're not going to protect it when you have to cut and pivot and i come at you and i stutter step and and Mm -hmm. you could stop like and you don't flinch these are the things we need to see this is why the rehab process is long because these are the progressions that go into it
2: some of the PTs I see will text me and go, did you see so-and-so? Yeah. Why? Oh, because I can tell a difference in how they're attacking their physical therapy now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, they're more aggressive. They're more confident. They're more assertive with that. Did you find
0: yeah. that thing that you were looking for Rob?
2: Yeah, I have it right here. So, uh, in your own words, describe how the injury, uh, occurred. And then this injury has affected my performance, not at all to severe self-confidence passion for my sport sense of identity Uh, Do you experience any of the following unpleasant feelings or states? Fear of re-injury, trust my body less, anxiety, anger, frustration, depression, sadness, griefs, intrusive thoughts about the injury, intrusive images, hopelessness, despair. Um, My overall level of mental and emotional discomfort is I think about my injury not at all or all the time. I have intrusive thoughts. When I think about returning to play, my confidence level is... Do you have any images associated with your injury? And and they mm-hmm. fill all this out. And wow. if they're honest with me with ACLs, like I said, they're always eighth, ninth, ten severe yeah. if they're honest. Yeah.
1: Wow, that's those. Those are some cool questions. I really like the the image thing. You know that. Yeah. That you know we all go through that. Something just you can't get it out of your head, and yeah. the sights, the sounds, the smells. I mean, a lot of when you talk to even just military veterans, some of the PTSD they go through, those are the things they talk about and it just plays over and over in their head, you know, mm-hmm. and that's, it's just powerful.
2: I worked with Navy SEALs for three years, active and retired. And some of the stories I heard, wow. Yeah, but MDR the helped them and it helped them rebalance their brains mm-hmm. and a lot of them, some of them had 20, 25 concussions and all. And, you know, I had some of them say, you helped save my brain in a sense, because, the protocols with sound and vibration does something special to the brain with concussions and CTE and, and brain injuries like that. It's just, it's remarkable work. And unfortunately that relationship ended for some of what you and I were talking about earlier about um, people's egos and things like that. But yeah,
0: uh, sometimes when you move a little bit faster than uh, the organization wants, you know, like you just, you ruffle feathers and they mm-hmm. go, oh, yo, easy, buddy. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like You're moving too fast here, you know? Like, no, I yeah, think that's
2: what happened. Yeah. yeah. It's unfortunate because I felt like I really made some dynamic and powerful contributions to that work. But, you know, I believe well, we're going to
0: add you. We're going to add you to the ACL Return to Play Academy Facebook page that I have uh, <laughs> because we do not have a sports psychologist on there. And I think that this would be an extremely powerful and beneficial thing for the page to have someone like you because we do get asked these questions a lot by by these parents. You know, I get people that, that reach out to me on the side and I really didn't know where to send them. And then just the other day I saw one and I said, hey, reach out to Robert. You know, so uh, now that I know that you're on there and then we'll get you on, you know, our page as well. Uh, but how would someone else finds you what is what what social media platforms are you using
2: the first thing i want to say is i cannot call myself a psychologist because i have a master's degree in psychology and in texas they're really tough on that so okay uh, it's sports psychology consultant i'm not a psychologist because i do not have a phd uh you can go to TINSSP.com or search the institute of sports performance houston that will pop up there's a facebook page for that uh my cell is 713-201-8968. Office is 713-522-2200. There's me. I have another associate that is remarkably gifted and talented with EMDR also. So if I'm too busy, Michael can take up the the load there. But uh, I really appreciate, I hope we do this again because man, we're we're oh, there's so much. Like, to,
0: there's so much still to get. We're into. speaking I mean, yeah, the we same could, language here. This could yeah. be this could be a three-hour, you know, Joe Rogan podcast. But what we try to do is, you know, uh, what we did was we had the podcast, and then we, you know, we we spun off into a 15-minute segment, and then we realized that our 15 minutes was clearly not enough for us. So we're going to use those 15-minute segments for more of me asking my questions and we're Mm -hmm. going to get back to doing more of the the length of your podcast because there is so much value. And sometimes, yeah, maybe if we don't have the time, a 30 minute good conversation is great. But if we have the time like we do right now, like this is, this has been awesome. I mean, this is just incredible stuff. I can't wait to edit this and get this out so that the parents can actually see this. Mm -hmm. I know that we have a decent following with, you know, people listening to the podcast. So, this could only be more powerful and more helpful for them. So again, we appreciate your time, Robert.
2: Yeah. And and like I said, when you and I were talking before we started recording today, I, I hear the stories of these parents and it's it's just from a physical perspective. And I hear so much suffering and so much angst. And, and to be able to present this information out there with the three of us, I think is going to, open a lot of eyes and minds to that there's, there's a whole nother world to explore with these injuries. So thank you very much.
0: We always let Mike wrap up the show. Mike always has (laughs) some kind of outro for us. So Mike, take it away.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, it comes down to the same thing we've been going on for the past three years of uh, we call it like a mastermind group of really trying to find the people that want to be part of pushing the envelope, and are trying to make a difference to try to basically almost kind of better the planet as corny as it sounds, but that's really what it is. You have massive issues going on and you have people that want to contribute and help. You have the people that want to complain. And then you have the people that don't want to do anything about it. So, you know, you get to a point in your career and a point in your life where you stop wasting time with those that don't want to do it and you climb the mountain and you push the envelope and eventually you get to that point where you're at a certain status. And then everyone's saying, I want to get up there. What do I got to do? And it's like, well, you know what? You should have put in a little bit effort earlier because we're seeing that a little bit with some of the younger generation and even some of like younger parents, probably even in like millennial generation, my generation and that, you know, it's a hard time managing a lot of the stuff in today's society. Things are tough. People need direction. And we live in an age of information, but where's the right information? Because with social media and freedom of speech, anybody could say anything, anybody could write anything, and even that, people could say they could use that term right there. Rather, right? they could say I'm a sports psychology consultant and put it on social media, an Instagram page, and they don't have any education. They just go around on Instagram and follow people they like, and they put information out. and Parents, people don't know any better. Mm-hmm. So
2: I see that a the, lot. Yeah.
1: yeah, do it with PTs. We got movement specialists and kinesiology experts and You can just say whatever you want it's it's a bunch of bs but that's that's the world we live in so we're really trying to bring all the people in that knowledge group together and trying to network and take all these pieces and put it together try to pack something out that's good that's going to help you know um and just kind of surround ourselves by that right that you know basically that circle So, you know, I really would love to be able to try to, um, you know, send some uh, patients, you know, to you and just say, I don't know if you do, like, you have like a consultation or something that you would do for people to kind of get a customer, just ask questions or things Mm -hmm. like that. Does it always have to be like a first, first like uh, session? Like, how
2: would you? Well, I usually get the call or the email and then mm. we set up a time to talk and I answer their questions and explain how I work. And okay. if they've heard this, this is going to answer all those yeah. questions. Yeah. Okay. And Definitely. then yeah. most of the time they go, wow, that's that's Sally or John or what. Yeah. That yeah. He's, he's talking about my kid, you know, yeah. or me yeah. if it's an adult that's had an, a, an injury like that. So yeah. I think they'll resonate with what we've done today big time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to do that. I'd like to be able to, um, I don't know if you have, some like marketing stuff that you could send over to me like a PDF mm-hmm. or something in your information. I could put that up in the um, uh, lobby here. We have all of our information for all the people we work with uh, and Joe could do the same because you're just an extra piece to this. We're working on all these these things, but we only have so much capacities as a strength conditioning coach, as a PT, and there's other lanes that need to be filled, just like we have networks with a nutritionist and a specialist there to mm-hmm. help with stuff, you know, we do the intro, and you're someone that can handle that lane, it's, just, it's too much, it's too much to handle, it's a loaded mm-hmm. bomb dealing with this, you need those multiple disciplines so that would be really helpful, because this is a piece that is huge, and we're dealing with it, and I, I think this could be very powerful to help, to help people out.
2: Well, I'm, I'm smiling because I've had some providers, uh, they're very territorial, you know, and, uh, and it's nice to hear you guys say we, we're collaborative. Yeah. Right. You know, right. We're, we collaborate and that's all to collaborate for the greater good of the athletes that we get to help. I can't do what you do and I can't do what the orthopedic surgeons do and they can't do what I do. But if people would understand that we can work together and improve yeah. outcomes, man. That's what, the,
0: that's what we're here for is to, yeah. is to provide better outcomes for Absolutely. the athlete. Yes. Yep. And
1: exactly. all I would say is, you know, think about it. If it was your daughter or your son, what would you want? So the people that are protective and that are hesitant, think about when something happens to a loved one and you want to get to some place that's given you the right answers, the time and the attention, you know, how would you feel? So it always it always changes the tides when it becomes personal. Put yourself in that position. Now, that's probably something else you could talk about is that mental imagery. Put, really take time to put yourself in those shoes and try to experience those feelings and how you would feel. All of a sudden, you're right. You do go into a dark cave and you're like, wow, that mm-hmm. really okay. hits. It's just people yeah. have these shells over them, you know, so it's hard.
2: Tuesday, I'm going to a local university to speak to their physical therapy students. And one of the ways I'm going to start the presentation off is how many of you have suffered injuries? How many of you have been involved in a bad car wreck? And then say, well, close your eyes for a minute and, and don't go too far into this. But is there an image that pops up around that? And mm. every one of them will have that image. And then from that, I'm going to work my way through this two-hour program to educate them on, on what to look for with the patients that they see, yeah. because they'll they'll have their own experience of that.
0: I wish I could fly down there and attend that. That sounds like amazing.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Bring it on. I'll see if I can squeeze you.
0: <laughs> there, you there you go. Mike, where can they find you on social media? Uh, at LinkedIn, Mike St. George. Um, and then I'm on
1: Instagram at the honey badger underscore juicy. Keep it light around here. And then I'm on Facebook too. You'll find me in that ACL uh, return to uh, sport, the academy. Well, Joe just changed the name, so it's the ACL. Yeah.
0: Fans, ACL return to play.
1: Academy. Return to play academy, and then we yeah. had the parents of ACL Facebook group are in there, mm-hmm. uh, and those are really like the three major networks. Wow, that's uh, cool. Yeah.
0: yeah, you can find me at Coach underscore Haas on Instagram. Joe Haas on LinkedIn. Uh, we'll also add in the other Instagram page that we just started. It's the ACL R2P. Academy. Um, And so I'm trying to think. Oh, and obviously Facebook at Coach Haas and then the Facebook group page, the ACL Return to Play Academy, Uh, all places you can find us. Uh, If you don't see me posting, you're not looking hard enough because I am on every platform constantly. YouTube, you name it. And uh, as soon as we get off here, I'll start the editing process to get this out for early next week. Again, Robert, thanks again for all your time. And uh, we will be in touch shortly. Guys, have a great weekend. All righty.
1: All right, guys. Talk later.